G'day and welcome to Age, Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman and I'm going to start this case with a warning. This case involves disturbing details of assault and murder, so you might prefer to skip this one and join me for one of the less violent cases. In 2012, Brett Mack was found guilty of the murder of his mother. Eventually, his conviction would lead to the extension of the forfeiture rule in Australia. As much as I don't want to make this a lecture, there is going to be a bit of legal theory in this storytelling. Because it is a long case, I've broken it up into chapters to let you know what I'm focusing on as we go along. Brent's mother's name is R.B. Mack, and so it's spelled A-H space B-E-E. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it, but I could be wrong. Uh, but it doesn't really matter because she always went by the name Pauline, and that's how I'm going to refer to her. Pauline was born in Malaysia. She married Donald Mack in the 1980s, and they had two sons, Brent and Adrian. Pauline's brother, Harry Chu, also lived in Australia. They weren't super close, but they contacted each other for important events like Christmas and birthdays. In 2008, when Brent was 23 years old, he moved back home with his parents. In August of that year, Donald Mack passed away. Pauline inherited a substantial amount of money and assets from her husband, and she stayed living at their home at Mount Hawthorne with Brent. Due to a family dispute, Adrian had moved out of the house. Both Pauline and Brent had a violence restraining order taken out against Adrian. In early 2010, Pauline's brother Harry Chu was diagnosed with cancer, and his wife Nellie wrote to Pauline to tell her. When they didn't hear back from her, they were concerned, and went to check on her at her home in July. Nellie spoke to the neighbours. They told her that Brent had told them Pauline had returned to China. Nellie was disturbed by this because Pauline was from Malaysia. Harry spoke with Brent, who told his uncle that Pauline had started a new life, had new friends and wanted to be left alone. He refused to let them into the house. The inconsistencies and Brent's behaviour concerned them, but they had no choice but to leave. A couple of days later, they got a card from Pauline, thanking them for their concern, but saying she had started a new life and wanted to be left alone. It wasn't written how Pauline would write it, and they became more suspicious. For one thing, she had signed off with best wishes, RB, but she only used the name RB for leases and checks. She went by Pauline. On the 6th of August 2010, the family contacted the police and reported Pauline as missing. Police spoke with Brent and he told them his mother had moved out just before Christmas 2008 and he refused to give them any contact details for her. Interestingly, in this first conversation with police, Brent said, and I quote, I was a missing person once and the police never cited me. They just came to the house, said I wasn't there and that was it. End quote. It's a bit of a weird thing to say. The major crime squad launched an investigation to locate Pauline, but there was no trace of her after late 2008. A search of the house was conducted, but there was no sign of Pauline. And the more the police looked into it, the more suspicious things became. When they looked at Pauline's bank accounts, they saw that her term deposits had been transferred into one account, and large sums were being withdrawn from this account by cheque and paid into Brent's account. They saw that the authorization given to the bank to transfer the funds had come from an email account that belonged to Brent. 
A document examiner looked at the checks and said that they were not signed by Pauline. And while Brent had said that he knew nothing about the thank you card that had been sent to Harry Chu and his wife, his fingerprints were found on the card. Brent told police he did not know where his mother's checkbooks were. However, one of his mother's checkbooks was found at his computer store. Police believe that sometime between the 17th of December 2008 and 6th of August 2010, Brent had murdered his mother. This was a difficult case for the prosecution to prove. There was no body, there was no evidence to suggest that Pauline was dead or how she might have died. There isn't even a date of death, just this long period between December 2008 and August 2010. The case relied on circumstantial evidence. Chapter 1. The Trial Before a court could decide whether Brent was guilty of murdering his mother, there was first a court hearing to determine whether Brent was fit to stand trial and whether there would be a jury. Even for this initial trial, Brent didn't want to attend court in person. He wanted to appear by video link and said that if they forced him to go in person, he wouldn't participate in any way and wouldn't speak. The court ordered him to appear in person. The normal rule is that the accused person should be present in court in order to face their accuser. Also, the accused conduct in court and reaction to evidence is valuable evidence in itself. Brent kept his word, however, and he didn't say anything and avoided all eye contact, keeping his head down. There were video records of his three interviews with police. In all three interviews, he was logical and coherent and was able to answer questions. He maintained eye contact in the first two interviews, but a little less so in the third. There was a recorded telephone call with his brother in October 2011. In the phone call, his tone was appropriate and he discussed the issues of his case coherently. The reason the interviews and phone calls are important are because at trial, the defence called a qualified psychiatrist to argue that Brent was not fit to stand trial because he lacked the ability to follow events and to, to defend himself. He diagnosed Brent as having autism, in part due to his lack of eye contact and inability to sustain a conversation. The doctor's opinion was based on a three-hour interview with Brent that happened only two months after his phone call with his brother. The prosecution had their own qualified psychiatrist assess Brent and assessed him as being on the autistic scale but otherwise fit for trial. The court went into a bit about what extent a mental disorder affected a person's fitness to stand trial. I found it all interesting, but I'll assume you want me to just get to the point. The court said that based on the expert evidence, they would accept that Brent had a mental impairment due to autism. The court said that the trial judge will need to take into account Brent's condition when assessing his conduct at trial and ensure that he had a chance to defend himself, but otherwise Brent was fit for trial. I also wanted to quote how carefully the court put this. Quote, it is likely that the accused current presentation is more as a result of choice coupled with his autism than a result simply of his mental impairment, end quote. Which is rather a polite way of saying that Brent was playing up his condition to avoid the court proceedings. The court noted that Brent's condition would make the case take longer and would require more frequent adjournments and because of this decided that Brent's trial would be heard by a judge alone without a jury. The court also held that due to his condition, Brent could attend the trial by video link.
Chapter 2 Motive There is no evidence that there was any ill will between Brent and his mother. The prosecution argued that Brent's motive was to get his mother's money and property, which he did. In between December 2008 and June 2010, Brent forged his mother's signature on cheques to get 225000 from her bank accounts. He got to stay in the Mount Hawthorne property that was owned by his mother. He was also able to access the income from his mother's commercial properties that brought in about $53,000 a year. The first cheque made out from his mother's accounts to him was for $3,250 and it was made on the 25th of December 2008. Chapter 3 Brent's Stories From the time of the first police interview in on the 26th of August 2010, Brent maintained that his mother had left the house and she wouldn't allow him to tell anyone where she was. In his second interview with police, police suggested that maybe Pauline died of natural causes or suicide. Brent denied this. To explain why he had so much of his mother's money, Brent said that his mother was helping him with his business expenses. He said she was still doing this throughout 2009. In a conversation with his brother on the 9th of September 2010, which was recorded, Brent said that she was part of the Chunghua Association and was staying with someone from there. He said that she was psycho, that she was nuts. In September 2011, Brent contacted the police and said he would show them where his mother's body was, but then he refused to participate. In another conversation with his brother on 6th of May 2012, Brent suggests hypothetically that whatever happened to Pauline, she did it to herself. On 11th of May 2012, Brent went with police to Lake Julep and they did a thorough search of the area, but they didn't find anything. In July, Brent returned to the house with police and this time he told them that his mother had killed herself in the shower by slashing her arms. This new account from Brent was that it was a Sunday morning and he had been working on a computer in the shed and his mother was in the bathroom. She was taking too long in the shower and he became worried. Instead of going inside and knocking on the bathroom door, Brent breaks open the bathroom window from the outside and climbs in. He said he found his mother sitting in the shower, still alive but with bleeding injuries on her forearms and a serrated knife nearby. He turns off the shower taps. Pauline was able to speak but only a little and told Brent no. He took this to mean don't call for an ambulance and don't tell anyone she had killed herself, so he didn't. All within that one little word, no. Brent sat with his mother for a few minutes and said she wasn't very alive. He turned the cold water tap back on because there was still a lot of blood and then he left the room. He needed to think about what to do. In his own words, quote, I wasn't finished thinking about what to do for another week, end quote. So he didn't return to the bathroom for a week. By then he was worried that if he called for help he would get in trouble because he had waited so long and now his mother was dead. He decided that he had to move Pauline's body. In the middle of the night on New Year's Eve, he took the body, together with some lime he had taken from the shed, and he buried her in the wetlands at Lake Julep. The police did searches of the area around Lake Julep, but Pauline's body was never found. So what did the court think of this last account given by Brent? The court found that the number and nature of Brent's various lies made it hard to believe him when he says that his mother committed suicide. Also, if it was suicide, why didn't he report it at the time? Brent argued that it took him a long time to process the death 
and that's why he didn't call for help straight away. However, the court noted that he began using his mother's money straight away, so maybe he was able to process her death after all, at least enough to take advantage of it. Why didn't he report the suicide when police first began investigating? Brent wasn't able to give any clear reason for this. The court believed that Brent did move and dispose of the body as he said, but nothing else of his story. Brent lied many times to many people. In combination with the other evidence, such as the use of the money, this supported the conclusion that Brent killed his mother. The court determined that Pauline was already dead by the 29th of December 2008, when Brent first accessed her money. Brent was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment with a maximum of 20 years without parole. Because Brent gave so many accounts of what happened, and the last one was so wildly unbelievable, we still don't know exactly what happened to Pauline Mack. Chapter 4 further court proceedings. There was an inquest into Pauline's death in October 2013. However, they still hadn't found a body, so there was still no way to determine how and when she had died. So there was little the inquest could find. In 2014, Brent appealed against his conviction and the length of his prison sentence. However, the appeal was dismissed. Chapter 5, The Forfeiture Rule So as I said at the start, this case may introduce you to the forfeiture rule, and it's also the case that extended the forfeiture rule in Australia. So what do I mean when I say forfeiture rule? The forfeiture rule states that a person who is convicted of murder or manslaughter cannot inherit from the person they have murdered. It makes so much sense that you just presume it will be the case that if you murder someone in our court, you still can't keep all of that person's property, right? Well, not necessarily. It needed to be made into law, and long, long ago, the forfeiture rule was created, and we have it in Australia. It is based on the principle that a person should not receive a benefit from their wrongdoing. In this case, the court ordered that the operation of the forfeiture rule meant that Brent could not inherit from his mother's estate, and everything was to go to Pauline's other child, Adrian. Estages means all of Pauline's money, property, and personal effects. So, generally, all of Pauline's money and property was supposed to be divided equally between Brent and Adrian, 50% each. But because of the forfeiture rule, because Brent had killed his mother, he was not entitled to that 50%, and everything was to go to Adrian. However, before Pauline's estate could be administered, In 2014, Adrian died without a will, and the two people in line to inherit Adrian's estate were his brother Brent and his half-brother Gary Mack. The public trustee of Western Australia, acting as the administrator of Pauline's estate, brought legal proceedings to prevent Brent from inheriting any of Pauline's estate from his brother. Brent was in no way involved in his brother's death, so the forfeiture rule would not apply to him inheriting his brother's estate. The forfeiture rule prevented Brent from inheriting directly from his mother's estate, but this case looked at extending that rule so he couldn't inherit from his mother's estate even if it had been transferred to his brother's, an indirect inheritance if you would. So basically, Pauline dies and all of her money and property, the house, the investment properties, all of it's going to Adrian. 
But before he can get it, Adrian dies. And all of Pauline's money, property, the house, the investment properties are going to pass down to Adrian's half-brother, Gary Mack, but also to Brent, who killed Pauline. So by indirect inheritance, Brent was set to receive a share of Pauline's estate. Now, judges can't just say, we think this is wrong, therefore we won't allow it. They make decisions based on existing laws we have. And as I said, in this case, the forfeiture rule applied and prevented Brent from inheriting Pauline's estate, but it didn't act to prevent him inheriting Adrian's. There are two main sources of law in Australia. Legislation, which are laws written and enacted by Parliament, and common law or case law, which is the cases that have been heard in courts and from which judges have formed legal principles. The legislation that applied in this case was the Forfeiture Act of 1995, New South Wales. The Act states that the Supreme Court can modify the effect of the forfeiture rule if it is satisfied that justice requires the effect of the rule to be modified. That was all the court had to go on, because a case of indirect inheritance like this hadn't been considered in Australia before. Because there was no case law in Australia, the court looked at cases in the US. In America, the forfeiture rule is more dramatically called the Slayer Rule. There, the rule has been extended to apply to cases of indirect inheritance like this one. And I want to give you a couple of examples that the court looked at. The first case example the Australian court looked at was the case of Riggs versus Palmer. So this was an 1880 New York case. In 1880, Francis Palmer prepared a will leaving a small gift to each of his two daughters, and the rest of his estate, being a farm and considerable property, was to go to his grandson, Elmer Palmer. Later on, Francis indicated an intention to change his will. In order to prevent Francis from changing his will and to obtain the property sooner, Elmer poisoned his grandfather. The court found that it was a universal law in all civilised countries, that no one should be permitted to acquire property by his crime and thus be rewarded for its commission. The other case the Australian court looked at was in the estate of Valerius, which is an Illinois case. In this case, the grandsons Douglas and Craig were involved in the murder of their grandmother Adela. The grandmother had done a will leaving everything to her two grandsons, Douglas and Craig. Adela's only child was Rennie, the mother of Douglas and Craig. Rennie died less than three months after her mother was murdered. The effect of the Slayer rule would be that because they were involved in Adela's death, Douglas and Craig couldn't inherit her estate. It would then all go to Rennie. But Rennie had died as well, and her will left everything to Douglas and Craig. The court said that Douglas and Craig could inherit their mother's estate, just not anything in it that had come from Adela's estate. Chapter 6. Getting back to our case. So back here in Australia, the court made a similar ruling, finding that the forfeiture rule could be extended to prevent Brent from inheriting that part of his brother's estate that had come from his mother's estate. The court ruled, and I quote, Intuitively, it would seem to be a logical extension of the rule of forfeiture to hold that person in the position of Brent, a convicted murderer, could not benefit directly or indirectly as a consequence of his crime. End quote. 
Basically, it's only logical that the person who is convicted of murder cannot inherit from their victim, even in a roundabout way. Chapter 7. Determining what is part of the estate. The decision in this case was possible partly because the estate of Pauline remained almost completely unchanged since it had been inherited by Adrian Mack. It's uncertain how it would have been handled if the property was no longer clearly defined and if it had merged with another. In this case, Pauline's property hadn't been transferred to Adrian yet, so it was pretty clear what property was from her estate. But to give an example of what it could have looked like, Say Pauline's estate included the house at 144 Fairfield Street, Mount Hawthorne. It also had a $50,000 superannuation payment and about $4,000 in the bank account. And all of this is to go to Adrian, but soon afterwards Adrian dies. And Adrian's estate includes the house at 144 Fairfield Street, Mount Hawthorne, a check from a superannuation company for $50,000 and about $10,000 in the bank account. You can easily trace what parts of Adrian's estate came from Pauline's, which makes it easier for the court to identify what Brent shouldn't get. However, if Adrian had lived another 10 years, let's say he sold the property, brought another property jointly with his wife, got a mortgage for an investment property, made a killing on the stock market and then lost it all, divorced and his wife got half of everything, and then after all of that, it would be hard to see what part of his property came from Pauline's estate. And if that had happened, the court may have allowed Brent to get his share of his brother's estate because they could no longer tell what part of it came from Pauline. So basically, at the end of all of that, the outcome was that Brent doesn't get any of his mother's estate. He doesn't get it from her estate, and he also wasn't able to inherit it through his brother's estate. I think it was a good extension of the forfeiture rule. I think anyone looking at these facts would agree that it would just be wrong to allow Brent to financially benefit after he had killed his mother. As I spoke about in another episode, murder and elder abuse can be the same. So elder abuse being the harm of an older person by someone they trust and in this case Brent murdering his mother in order to gain all of her money and property. So it is murder and it is also elder abuse. So as well as being elder abuse there's another crossover here which is recently there's been some recommendations that anytime someone is found guilty of having committed elder abuse the forfeiture rule should be extended again. To give you an idea of what that might look like, say Brent hadn't killed his mother, but had instead just stolen all of her money and was found to have done so. Then the argument is that the forfeiture rules should extend so that having committed this offence against his mother, he then wouldn't be entitled to inherit any of his estate. It's a theory that's being kicked around, just a suggestion. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, I can definitely see cases where I would be for it, but I can also see how it might be harder to prove and to uphold. So if you've got any ideas around it, please feel free to send them my way.
That was the case of the Public Trustee of Western Australia versus Mac. The citation is provided in the notes. If you have any thoughts on the case or recommendations of cases for me to cover, I'd love to hear them. You can email them to me at elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. That's elderservice, one word, at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. A big thank you from the Elder Abuse Service for listening in. If anything I've covered today has triggered something, or if you've identified or are at risk of elder abuse, you can call 1800 353 374. Or if you're on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact our service on 02 4324 5611.